0: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am proud to say that this episode is made possible by Fly Fusion Magazine. There are a few fishing magazines that I am willing to put my name on and even less that I'm willing to actually read. But Fly Fusion is one of the few that keeps my attention. As a member of their editorial staff, I can say with authenticity that this is one publication that allows their editors to write about the causes they believe in. They don't base their entity around manufacturers who pay for ad space. And they don't hire writers with any other agenda apart from genuinely sharing our love for the sport and all of the beautiful places it brings us. Greg Osborne is the Founder and Executive Director of the Three Rivers Sportsmen's Alliance. The Alliance is an all-volunteer political action committee whose sole purpose is to support and promote their more fish for all policy by way of hatcheries. In this episode, I meet with Greg at his office in Oregon to try and learn more about his viewpoint and his operation. Audio disclaimer. Unbeknownst to me, there was a gentleman in the room who scribbled notes to Greg as I asked questions. After about 25 minutes or so, I bring him into the conversation, and the extra noise in the background ceases. Thank you for your patience with the audio. I wish that all acoustics and meeting places were created equally.
1: I actually work as a device consultant for a medical company, but I'm also the executive director of the Three River Sportsmen's Alliance, based in Sandy, Oregon.
0: So what does the Sportsman's Alliance do?
1: We are a congregation of fishermen and business people who are in the interest of uh, propagating and promoting hatcheries, basically, and and making sure that we have hatcheries for future generations to enjoy.
0: The entire foundation is based around?
1: Supporting hatcheries, yes.
0: Okay, so when was it founded? Three years ago. By?
1: By myself.
0: You started it? Yes. Okay, so what's the story? Why did you decide it's time? Something needs to be done.
1: Primarily, the reason was was I grew up fishing the Sandy River, which is very, very close to where we're at here. And I noticed the runs started to diminish significantly, and that coincided with the reduction in hatchery production. So we just weren't putting any more hatchery fish in the river, and the runs basically started to really, really deplete. Fishing got worse and worse and worse, And then an organization called the Native Fish Society came in and decided to sue the hatchery to try to shut it down completely. So, And I thought, this can't happen. We need to have an organization to fight against groups like that. And so that's how we got started.
0: And what was your background in environmentalism or in in hatcheries or fisheries to be able to decide that you could start such an organization to fight someone like the Native Fish Society?
1: I just did it out of the interest of the local community because... There's a lot of local fishermen here and a lot of businesses that have actually gone under because of the fact that groups like the Native Fish Society have come in and done a ton of damage to the fishery and have reduced the hatchery runs to the point to where people don't want to fish anymore. Therefore, they do not buy tackle, they do not buy gas, they do not buy food. They just don't utilize the fishery anymore.
0: So everything comes down to economics then?
1: Primarily economics, and primarily another big reason is, is recreation for our kids. You know, if you look at what a kid can do physically to catch a salmon or steelhead, they pretty much have to have a situation where they're in a drift boat or if they're in a jet sled, and, you know, they might be back bouncing or they might be running a plug, a diver, or something like that. Now, some organizations would like to see the Sandy River a completely artificial-only fly fishing stream, okay? and I'm sorry to say, but it's pretty much impossible for an 8-, 910 year old kid to weigh down to a river and catch a steelhead or a salmon on a fly. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. They're going to lose interest for one thing, because the opportunity probably most likely will not happen. It is not easy to catch a fish on a fly. I fly fish myself, and I'm okay at it, but it's just not quite as successful as using gear. What so if there bigger. was
0: an age where maybe say till 16 you could fish with conventional gear and then at 16 you had to move to more difficult methods you could start with spoons and work your way up into the fly i mean is bait allowed on the sandy yes okay so as far as like a bait ban goes i mean has that ever been something that people have contemplated
1: uh, yeah, actually, bait has been banned on some of the upper tributaries of the Sandy River. Okay, so
0: they're forward-thinking with that.
1: Yeah, so that's pretty much a fly-fishing-only stretch in the upper upper reaches of the Sandy River.
0: Okay, so there are such
1: things. And so they do, you know, if, if you're into fly-fishing, you do have an area where you can go and pretty much fly-fish. Mm-hmm. Whereas many areas of the Sandy River are deep, canyon-type, 20-foot hole-type water, which really isn't conducive to fly-fishing. In my mind, you know, I like to see, you know, maybe a shallow two to six foot riffle for fly fishing, whereas that kind of water doesn't exist through the main part of the Sandy River.
0: Yeah, it can be difficult in sort of canyony stretches. I know we've got those sorts of rivers in BC and fly. There's definitely some areas where fly fishing is difficult.
1: Yeah, it's impossible for a back cast in those streams.
0: Unless you're spay fishing, have you started spay fishing yet? No. Okay, well that would explain everything. So okay. we've got to get you onto the spay rod. Okay. But that aside, because I try not to draw any sort of lines between gear fishermen and fly fishermen, because I myself started out as a bait angler when I was a kid, and even up into my teens, and, and I think that's what really gave me an appreciation for steelhead was catching them on bait and then moving the spoons, and then you know eventually single hand rod and then the spay rod. So I try not to draw lines there, but. When it comes to the hatcheries, let's take away the children. Let's just take the children out of this. And let's even take the economics out of this. Just as far as a straight conservation standpoint, I mean, hasn't there just been a ton of data that has proven that hatcheries are detrimental and at the end of the day, really, they're actually doing the opposite? They're actually doing harm and starting to deplete the fisheries?
1: For the most part, that is completely false. How so? We met with one of the biologists at the Oregon Hatchery Research Center uh, at Oregon State University. Mm -hmm. And the discussion with her was, was very secretive and political. She asked us to say that she was not at the meeting.
0: Did she work for the government?
1: Yes, and the most recent hatchery research actually is contrary to what the belief is that hatchery fish are harmful to the environment and the rivers.
0: So what's the first argument that you hear from, say the native fish society?
1: That hatchery fish are harmful to the native runs. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about the native runs on the Sandy River. Okay. There are none. What do you mean? There are no native runs on the Sandy River. There's
0: no indigenous fish?
1: The only native fish on the Sandy River is potentially, maybe according to Todd Alsbury, the game biologist that covers this region, maybe winter steelhead.
0: Okay, well that maybe means- a
1: few winter steelhead are actually still native.
0: So mm-hmm. how, how can he say that maybe they haven't always been there? What's the, the science there? He said
1: they had been there at one point, but they had been fished to extinction. Okay. And revived with hatchery programs.
0: When would they have been fished to extinction?
1: Primarily during the Depression. Most of the rivers extinction. in Oregon were fished to near extinction. And on the Sandy River, we had dam counts that actually proved that. Where we brought where our dam counts over Marmot, which doesn't exist anymore, which is sad, uh, the dam counts were down to as low as 80 fish coming over the dam. Oh. You know, 80 fish total. And so the Fish and Game Department steps in, they ramp up a hatchery program, and then in subsequent years, we end up with 7,000 fish. So it's statistically impossible for these fish to truly be natives.
0: Except if there are indeed some fish that did come back I mean to be completely extirpated is one thing can they prove that or did they assume that they were close to extinction which is different? Do they have facts that the river was actually completely wiped out of all winter fish?
1: No they don't have a fact to you know to point to that but statistically it's pretty tough to argue that there is a pure hatchery or hatchery or native run on the sandy river
0: so what did this biologist say when she came to you why did she want to remain anonymous
1: the one at oregon state university mm-hmm. because the political ramifications of her giving us information would have cost her her job but in the she, state of oregon
0: i thought that the state of oregon especially specifically when it comes to the government i thought that they really wanted to have hatcheries
1: no the governor who had to step down recently because of corrupt allegations and truce that where he was doing a lot of underhanded things, and he lost his job and had to step down. I don't know if you know about that. No. Yeah, John Kitzhaber, a big-time Native Fish Society supporter, big-time Oregon trout guy, big-time Trout Unlimited founder, had to step down from the governorship because of corruption.
0: Corruption as in, like, he doesn't pay his taxes, or...?
1: <laughs> Corruption with uh, contracts being shifted one way or another. Okay. And he was actually behind the hatchery situation on the Sandy River. What he did was he stepped in to try to get rid of hatchery fish on three different rivers in this region, okay? And he did it for his voting base, primarily, which are members of the Native Fish Society Oregon Trout, Trout Unlimited.
0: Yeah, it's a tough one. If you believe one way or the other, regardless of both, you want to fight for it. It's amazing the stark contrast between the viewpoints. For me, Shane Anderson's video wild reference was a a complete game changer. When I saw that and I watched how the fish are slowly demolishing the wild stocks, it really, really changed my viewpoint. And that's why I wanted to speak with you because what other rivers are you guys supporters of?
1: Three rivers that we primarily support are the Clackamas, Sandy, and Columbia River.
0: Okay, let's talk about the, the fish biology. Is it true that the hatchery of fish has a smaller brain and actually has weaker muscles and therefore is inferior to the wild stocks and is eventually diluting the gene pool? What about that argument?
1: Well, that argument actually plays into what John talked about with broodstock programs. Mm -hmm. And primarily on the Sandy River, that's what they utilized, were broodstock programs. So what they did was, if you want to go back in history, let's say a hatchery fish survives its trek to the ocean. Mm -hmm. It goes to the upper tributaries, it spawns, its offspring goes back to the ocean, comes back, and now is supposedly what the department calls a natural. And so what they've done is they've taken these fish, which have not been in a hatchery, And they've used them to propagate broodstock programs.
0: They're not being reared in in the hatchery?
1: Yeah, they do rear them in the hatchery. But is that the argument? Is they say that just because the fish is born in a hatchery, they have a smaller brain? I mean, to me, if I say, I'm going to be a test tube baby, is a test tube baby going to have a smaller brain than someone that's actually born in the womb?
0: it's a tough one I mean I wish that I had I wish that I was a biologist that I could sit here and have this conversation and I even thought about trying to put you and you know one of the biologists in the same room But then it, the whole idea scared me a little bit so I, I opted not to do that <laughs> but um, it's a pretty it's a pretty compelling argument when when you do have you seen the, the video no you haven't seen wild reference
1: oh yes I, I do know all about that yes I did see that and it's it's uh I mean, if you want me to be frank about it, it's some of it's comical, and some of it's uh, this somebody's opinion.
0: Now, what about the economical standpoint? When, when Shane was talking about, we've proven that the more hatchery fish we're introducing, the less fish are actually returning. When they factored in the dollar of what each fish was worth, it was astronomical, and it just didn't make any sense.
1: Well, if you want to talk about the economy, let's talk about the big picture. We did an economic impact survey of just the upper Sandy River Basin, and it's a $3.4 million boost to the economy, having fish in the river. Mm -hmm. Now that's a huge, huge impact. And what we also do with the hatchery program here, the small one that still exists on the Sandy River, which has been drastically diminished by the Native Fish Society and the Pacific Rivers Council. I have
0: to cut you off because every page, um, I can't edit that sound out, and it's really loud. I'm so sorry. Go
1: Um, ahead. When we're talking about economic impact, let's talk about the economic impact on the Sandy in the in the area here. We did an ec- economic impact survey. We found that the Sandy Sandy River contributes 3.4 million dollars to the local economy just by having fish in the river. Okay, and that to me is a huge plus when you're talking about the you know the contributions to support a hatchery, which should be supported by buying tags to harvest salmon. That should go into support those hatchery programs, basically. And another thing that uh, hatcheries are very, very important for is, is the fact that uh, we actually go and harvest surplus hatchery salmon and steelhead. And we process them and give them to local food banks. So we feed hungry people with those surplus hatchery fish. And to me, that's pretty important when you're feeding people who are hungry.
0: But don't you think that the wild stocks could ever, if just left alone, that they could come back to the point where we could start taking fish, we'd have enough fish that we could start harvesting fish, albeit wild fish?
1: That's proven not to work. Why? On the Sandy River. Why? Mm -hmm. Because of, well, primarily we have predators. We have sea lions. We have cormorants who are out of control. Our our sea lion population is 20,000 sea lions over management objectives. Okay, and with the Endangered Species Act protecting those mammals, it's pretty difficult to to really control that. It's basically impossible to go after that species, which is completely devastating the runs. You know, for the most part, when those fish come back, you know they get run through a gauntlet, basically. And then you've got the high seas drift netters, and uh, the predator situation is out of control, and we're restrained by lawyers who like to make money. So. Basically, it hurts the native fish and it hurts the hatchery fish. So if you look at it like we're going to storm the beaches here with a bunch of fish, there's only a few, only a few of them are going to make it through, right? But if we eliminate those hatchery fish and just those native fish, well, what, what people call native fish, which really are not, storm the beaches, they're going to get decimated because they won't have the numbers to actually get through. I guarantee you that. And we've proved that on the Sandy River.
0: Well, let's take the Sandy out of the equation. What about the Columbia? I mean, you obviously are spokesperson for the Columbia. Nobody can deny that the Columbia has a run of indigenous steelhead.
1: Yes, it has a few. That has not
0: been extirpated. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, what's the argument there? Why? I mean, if, if, if you hold strong in your stance and your viewpoint about the Sandy... Because say they were wiped out in the Great Depression, and and I have heard this this argument before in in um, Eastern Canada back in the late 1800s, in um, actually in Ontario, the Atlantic salmon were also extirpated due to dams, and this incredibly plentiful run of salmon was gone forever. And they've since started trying to implement a program that brings them back. And it's there's various viewpoints on that. It was proven though to be wiped out from what I understand anyway so the sandy I'm gonna for me it's kind of gray let's go to where it's black and white the Columbia tell me a little bit about that
1: well if we've noticed the Columbia runs in the fall especially have exploded have you noticed that
0: I I don't get to fish I mean I'm in BC so I I stay in my little unmolested area over
1: there the last two years and this year coming we will have record returns of salmon and steelhead
0: and why do you, what do you attribute that to?
1: Indian hatcheries.
0: Okay, can you elaborate? Going,
1: the Indian hatcheries and the, the, uh, the Nez Perce tra- tribe and the Chief Joseph tribes are ramping up hatchery programs. And they're very, very successful. If you watch our Hatchery and Wild video that we help produce.
0: I think I looked at I did review it. A lot of it was, was alien to me, so I thought I'd just come and chat with you in person.
1: They had one example where they were down to a few hundred fish on one stream, and I can't remember the name of it. But that one stream with the few hundred fish is now seventy-six thousand fish. And so, to me, that's a success success story for hatcheries.
0: What is the argument that you hear from the people who are opposed to hatcheries?
1: The argument is is that hatchery fish are harmful to the native fish. That's always that's always the argument, but. In most cases, the native fish that are in the rivers today are of hatchery origin.
0: Do you think that it's all short-sighted? You've been in the alliance and have had the alliance for three years. Um, Three years in the grand scheme of things is extremely minimal. So could it all be short-sighted, this big hatchery push? I mean, what happens in 20 years if the data does come back and we realize, oh my God, we've They were right. You know, all of these fish are now, I mean, it was great that Columbia boom was excellent, but now all of these fish have slowly killed themselves off. Does that...
1: You you have to look at salmon as a renewable resource. It's like a tree on the hillside. Let's log a hillside and let's go in and replant it. 20 years from now, we're going to have a forest back that we can actually re-harvest. salmon are a sustainable resource.
0: That's a great example,
1: but let's talk about
0: that. You know, you you extract a forest And at the time everything looks great until you find out years later that it flushed out a system that killed all the smolts Now there's no roots for runoff. You know, you cut too close down to the water's edge and you find out after shit Really we've wiped out an entire fishery because the forest seemed like a good idea at the time And that's what I fear that hatchery steelhead might be. I, I mean a good idea at the time
1: Well, let's talk about hatcheries, and and we're talking about 20 years. The first hatchery on the Sandy River, I hate to go back there, was built in
0: 1890. Oh, yeah? Yes. And who built that?
1: That was built by, I think it was just a private hatchery owner on Boulder Creek, a tributary of the upper Sandy River. And so hatcheries have been in play for a very, very long time, and they have been successful. When you talk about having, you know, reasonable runs on the Sandy River for 125 years, Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good long-term experiment.
0: If we're going to go back, let's go back to trout. Have you been hearing any of the studies in Yellowstone Park? No. So they're doing the same sort of studies there, and they've proven that as soon as they took out the hatcheries, the fish population boomed. And it was very interesting to hear about this. I don't know if you know this, but I live half my year in Australia and half my year in British Columbia. And um, one of my dear friends in Austra- in Tasmania uh, worked with fisheries, and so they were able to take a lot of the studies that they did in Australia with fish and hatcheries there, because remember it was all introduced by the English and, and they were able to put that into Yellowstone National Park. And I mean, it just they, it paints such a compelling picture. So I'm just curious if that's going to end up translating into the, into the steelhead world as time goes on. I'd love to send you a link to watch that.
1: That'd be interesting.
0: So what about gene pool dilution?
1: Gene pool dilution. Well, as long as you maintain reasonable broodstock programs, which we were all for, we are completely 100% for broodstock programs.
0: Can you explain to my listener what what a broodstock is? I've got to remember in this conversation, my viewpoint doesn't matter. I really want to use this opportunity to have you be able to explain to the listener without being attacked. I mean, I, I really want to just open all areas of communication here so will you explain
1: the broodstock programs that i'm familiar with is a program where you will basically harvest or take a fish that is potentially native or natural from a stream and you will propagate the species by spawning those fish in a hatchery and use those offspring to propagate the hatchery run so anglers go out and
0: they catch the fish they put them in do you guys do the big blue tubes
1: that's right. Yeah, yes. and then you
0: bring them back to the hatcheries. Yes. And then you extract their eggs in yes. one bin, you extract their, the sperm in, in another, you mix them together, You use a little feather, put them in their little bins. Yes. And then what happens? You hatch them and you rear them in the hatchery.
1: That's right. And, and then you release them into the stream when they reach a reasonable age which that you is think they may. I think they're keeping them for about one year to where they're just about a pound when they release them on the Sandy River.
0: Right. Do you it's think in a pound. year, I mean, that is a, a major amount of time for, for developing feeding habits. What are they being fed at that time?
1: Oh, well, they're being fed, the, of course, the horrible hatchery pellets or whatever they, they use. Right? Yeah.
0: So not dry flies, none of those No. no. beautiful natural bits of entomology
1: like that. <laughs> well, I'm sure some flies land in the pools and they get consumed like, on occasion. <laughs>
0: But isn't that a uh, isn't that a valid argument that they're not being able to develop those natural habits?
1: Yeah, but they don't seem to have a problem surviving after that, because if if they could not survive, then not a single fish would survive being released back into into the stream and and allowed to travel out to the ocean and come back. What's
0: the counter argument to that that you hear from the other side?
1: The counter argument to to that part of it is is you hear that they may collect diseases in the in the holding ponds from other fish but um, well sure they're going to be you know if if you're in a stream they're going to intermingle a stream also sure it may be a larger stream that may be more dilute but um, I can see how you know if there was some kind of potential disease but the fish will die anyway if they're not going to survive they're not going to survive it's not like they're going to pass on something that's going to that's gonna you know make it to the species that are already existing in the river
0: what about the feed so is it true that the feed comes from dredging i always heard that they dredge the ocean and then for every one pound of fish it takes anywhere from three to five pounds of have food or pellets to feed that fish and that those numbers just don't add up for me what are your thoughts on that
1: I don't know what you mean by that,
0: as far as the cost,
1: what they're made of. The
0: environmental cost. When I'm speaking about costs, I I could give a rat's ass about economy here. I'm talking about the environment. I
1: didn't know they actually dredged. It's really hard for me to believe they would go to that. Length. I, I I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not sure.
0: I wanted to ask you. I really
1: doubt they do. That just doesn't make sense to me. We could actually talk to one of the hatchery managers here and get to the bottom of that.
0: Yeah, I'd because again, I'm totally ignorant. I mean, this is all hearsay, right? So I'd love to know what the pellets.
1: I would say that that, that would have to be completely false. There is absolutely no way, and I don't know who came up with that story, but it's a good one. I mean, that'd be like me saying that I don't think people should wade in rivers anymore because they disrupt the bottom and they kill all the little bugs by stomping on them in their wading boots. You know, that'd be like me going and suing a fly fishing organization for stomping on the river and saying you have to stand on the bank because you're going to disrupt the aquatic life if you wade into the stream. To me, that's the same thing.
0: Do you know how many pounds of food it takes per one pound of fish?
1: I do not, and I've actually watched them feed, and it doesn't look like they give them very much. I mean, they probably, each each feeding, I know they do two feedings a day, but I bet you they only feed in a pool with 10,000 fish, or no, not 10,000, say 100,000 fish. I bet you they feed five pounds a day. Okay. It's not much.
0: Yeah, I, I, we'll have to look it up. Yeah. It's very interesting. We could
1: go down and watch them do it.
0: Now, I've got John here. John Mayer, which is your real name, John. It's fascinating. And John is he's frantically scratching notes on a pad of paper. John,
2: what's the deal?
0: So, what do you do with
2: with with Greg here? Well, I'm on the board uh, with Greg, and I'm an avid fisherman. Just like Greg, I grew up fishing the Sandy River. And a couple points that I want to make is there is a lot of pressure on the resources, all resources. Um, and there's other techniques other than, you know, uh, there's insertion of the uh, eggs into gravel bars in the river. So you don't necessarily, there's different techniques that you can do to make those fish a little stronger and still supplement the run.
0: So they're being, so these hatchery eggs are being
2: released into the wild before they've hatched. Right, exactly. So
0: how many of them? I mean, I thought well, you were Well, there's wearing a technique
2: them. that they can take a device and shove the fertilized eggs into the gravel. So when these fish hatch, um, they're not being fed. Um, and as far as I, uh, my understanding is these fish, uh, they cannot tell the genetic difference between a, a wild fish and a hatchery fish. The fish that are basically put into the ground. Yeah, my understanding is uh, they can't tell the difference between a native fish and a hatchery fish. But can they tell the difference between one that was reared in a hatchery? And not one that that uh, maybe I misunderstand, but not from my understanding they can't tell the, the, the difference.
0: Have they started to do that yet? Have they started to um, put they, the eggs into the ground? Greg
1: can interject. Um, if you watch our video, Hatchery in the Wild, there's a, a group out of Malala that's starting to utilize that technique.
0: Starting as in the last...
1: They have a business. They've been doing it for a few years now. If you watch the video, you can actually see the technique in action.
0: So a few years. So the fish haven't had enough time yet to leave, do their rounds in the ocean and come back. So it would be hard to kind of showcase. Yeah,
1: that's an early, early experiment.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what about wild fish and, and hatchery fish competing <clears throat> for the same food source? Um, that's something that I hear often, oh. that, they're, that they're basically competing for food and very limited real estate, really.
1: Well, the uh, biologists in the area, they do studies to where they, they make sure that the river has enough nutrients to sustain specific numbers, and that's what that's what the hatchery, plantings are basically based on. We know that this river can sustain this many fish due to the nutrient level in the stream and they test those nutrient levels and they do not overstock, so to speak. Like on the Sandy River, you know, they're allowed to to stock up to 300,000 spring Chinook smolts and that's based on the nutrients and the nutrient levels in the river. So mm-hmm. it's not just an arbitrary number that they throw into the river. It's actually based on science.
0: Okay, now talk about science. So your background, you're a passionate angler, but you work with medical equipment. Yes. And John, you work in real estate, and you're an avid angler, a passionate angler as well. Where are you guys, like who do you outsource? Who are you hiring to bring in facts? Are you hiring people to bring in your data?
1: Well, we work with the local game biologist, We've worked with Steve Kramer of Kramer's Fisheries in Gresham, Oregon. Now, who's Kramer's a retired Fisheries. Kramer's, Kramer's Fisheries Sciences.
0: Because that doesn't sound like a government.
1: <laughs> He's not. He's a private. He's a game biologist who has a fisheries biologist who has his own business now, basically. And
0: what is his business from an income standpoint?
1: What he does, he actually helps build the weirs on the upper stretches of the Sandy River currently to help separate hatchery and... Wild fish that are allowed to go into the upper basin to spawn.
0: So, I mean, isn't there argument there that it's, it is in his best interest? I mean, it's one thing to have a government official fired because of corruption because he handles his personal life a certain way or, or his business. I mean, come on, most fishermen I know can't, they're, they're shit poor at handling their life, but they're extremely, um, they do great things for the environment, one way or the other. But this gentleman, I mean, isn't that something where he makes his his income off of that? So isn't his opinion going to obviously be biased?
1: Well, his opinion should be well supported by the state because the state bases some of their numbers for hatchery propagation based on his information.
0: So they do work together?
1: Yes, they do work together, hand in hand. And he is working with the state of Oregon on the weirs on the Zigzag and Upper Sandy River Basin to prevent native fish and hatchery fish from spawning together in the upper basin. And so that's their technique utilized today to try to reduce or eliminate what they call stray rates into upper basins. And so what that does is it it reduces the opportunity for a hatchery fish to spawn with a wild fish.
0: Just again for the listener, why would we not want to have a hatchery fish spawning with a wild fish?
1: Because... A, an environmental group like the Native Fish Society argues that that would be harmful, even though that's what's happened for a hundred years and it's happened to great success. But they will argue day in and day out and, um, that that is harmful, even though it works, it's harmful. And the reason those, those organizations exist is because they can think of something like that, carry a lawsuit forward, make some money, and continue to exist.
0: So you believe that, like, the Native Fish Society, for example, they do it from a monetary standpoint, from a gain financially?
1: 100%. And
0: that, that's, so can you give me an example in the past of why that might hold true in your
1: opinion? Because some of their arguments just do not hold water, in my opinion, and, and everybody else who is clear thinking. Because why would you come into an area from Northern California, attack a stream or attack an area say that this is how I believe it should be, hurt the people in that area, hurt families, hurt the economics, hurt the people that work in hatcheries, for what? What are they gaining from it? They're making money because their top directors are all paid. It's all about money for them.
0: I mean, I would just assume they're not being paid anything substantial. It, it's hard to... to. I mean, I can't see... I know a lot of those guys, and none of them seem to be rolling in in anything too fancy. Could it be that they're doing it because they genuinely believe in a cause? I mean, 100 years, really, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that long, is it? If they have been interbreeding for 100 years, couldn't the argument be that one of the reasons why the fisheries are so depleted or are in so much trouble is because they have been interbreeding for 100 years?
1: Well, the only way you're ever going to really... Prove that it doesn't work is by completely eliminating all hatchery programs. And to me, is that worth it? Is that that worth devastating an economy and telling a kid that, hey, guess what? You're not going to be able to fish for the next 25 years of your life because there are no hatchery fish in the river. Therefore, you are not able to keep a fish. Therefore, you're not going to go fishing. You're not going to want to go fishing because... You know, like most guys, well, I've caught a 1,000 salmon. I don't really want to go and reel in another salmon. The thrill is kind of gone. I'd like to go in and actually take one home and throw it on the barbecue and entertain my family with it and enjoy that fish rather than just go out and get up at oh, dark 30, stumble out on the riverbank and reel one in. That To me and most guys that have been doing it for 20, 30 years, the thrill is kind of gone. You're going out there to try to feed your family. it it
0: depends who you ask so if you ask me is it worth it to not be able to have you know to take hatcheries out entirely and see what happens i would say yeah i would say yes for me personally so i mean it does depend on who you ask when it comes to the general population because i would love to see i'm a huge supporter of of all things natural the reason why i started fishing as a little girl was i used to i was in girl guides do you know do you have girl guides or girl scouts Yes, yeah, so I did Girl Scouts for nine years, and then when I finished, I was a leader. And I used to love, you know, like pretending like I was one of the indigenous people and I'd be stalking in the forest. And I always fished because it was the only way I could live my life as if it were basically from the beginning of time. And I would love to see what would happen if it had that opportunity. And I just wonder, I mean, everything, like you said, comes down to money. And so I just, I fear that we're never going to be able to get that natural quality in our life back because of money.
1: I agree with you. So, the natural quality and the natural opportunity is lost forever because we have man, we have chemicals, we have dams, we have sea lions, we have cormorants, we have squawfish, we have high seas drift netters, we have poaching. It's absolutely something that can never ever be overcome. You cannot eliminate all those things to allow these fish to get back to where they were 200 years ago. It's completely impossible. It'd be nice, and I would totally agree with you. Let's do it, yeah, that'd be great. You know. And aside from a bad couple of flood years in a row, it, may, it would be successful. But you gotta remember, we've had some bad flood years on the Sandy where we've actually wiped out a lot of gravel beds. Mm-hmm. So when they took out Marmot Dam, like on the Sandy River, they wiped out 10 miles of gravel bed, 10 miles of spawning habitat by taking that dam out. Yeah, it's, the lower section of the Sandy River is decimated because an environmental group decided that the dam on the Sandy River was a bad thing even though there was no water behind it. It had completely filled in with large boulders. And now those large boulders have covered the spawning grounds for miles down below. the And the fish
2: never had a problem going around Marmot Dam. We had phenomenal numbers on the Salmon River, the upper sandy. Never hindered the fish one bit. They made it over the dam in huge, huge successful numbers.
0: But isn't that just, uh, I mean, the sacrifice that you get? You take the dams out, and of course there's going to be an impact initially. But isn't it worth it at the end? I mean, can time tell yet? Is it too soon? How long ago was that?
1: That was uh, back in two thousand and six.
0: Okay, so still and pretty recent then.
1: So we've got uh, we've got two thousand. Well, we've got almost ten years of decimated gravel bars. So if you take you know like like salmon, I know that specific groups of salmon are used to coming down back to specific areas in the river. Well, for the last ten years, those spawning grounds have been eliminated, and sure, they probably you know travel on up higher in the river to try to find. Well, They'll get
0: used to having a dam to work around. They'll get used yeah. to not having a dam to work around. Yet. Well,
1: the fish ladder worked very, very well. I mean, I've uh, done very well above the dam. And they had closed it for 10 years. And what was comical about that was the environmental uh, concept that let's remove this dam. And in the Oregonian, the local newspaper here, actually the state newspaper, actually said that now that the Marmot Dam has been removed... We're opening up another 13 miles of river that hasn't seen a salmon since the 1930s. That is a total lie to the public. How's The fish ladder worked great. Perfect. Worked perfectly. <laughs> but they lied like to the public, and that's part of the big lie. Mm-hmm. It's all a big lie.
0: Coming up, Greg and I continue the conversation on hatcheries. Again, please take a moment to check out Fly Fusion, in only a matter of minutes you can arrange to have the magazine delivered to your door four times a year subscribe today at www.flyfusionmag.com yeah and then uh, another uh, another big
2: problem is, is the public's being told that if a fish has an adipose fin, Mm -hmm. that it's a wild native fish.
0: It just means it hasn't been clipped in some cases? It just means it has not been
2: clipped, yeah. So part of the problem is these people, the general public that's out catching fish in the Columbia River, uh, they catch a fish and have to release it because the fin hasn't been clipped. In their mind, uh, they've been programmed to think that, oh, that's a wild fish. It's been here since Lewis and Clark. It's not true. The Indians have phenomenally successful hatchery program on the Columbia River. Uh, the sockeye salmon was almost eliminated. The sockeye salmon now are having phenomenal runs because of hatchery. So there's a there's a huge benefit to hatchery for all the public. And back when you were a kid, we had a, uh, we didn't have as many people on the planet as we do now. Right. You see what I mean. So the masses especially here on the sandy river when you have a metropolitan area should be able to enjoy the the river should be able to take their kid down there to catch a fish and there are other techniques you know you can you can insert those uh, eggs into a gravel bar we
0: can, you can you
2: can but you we can. don't know how
0: that's going to work then, well, yet well i know <laughs>
2: but there, you know you, you have brood stock and you have a lot of technology and you have proven runs in the past
0: what about size i mean i've always associated uh, hatchery fish to be cookie cutters because in my experience we do have one harvestable hatchery uh, fishery by my home in BC and I, I've been trying to avoid it like the plague these days because it's really really busy and every hatchery fish I've seen for the most part been a cookie cutter they've all been rather small uh, what's the argument there have you heard that I,
2: well I can give you my opinion yeah um, for an example up in Alaska Bristol Bay. I've seen uh, the sonars up there on uh, various rivers, uh, the Nishigak in particular, that uh, they have an escapement, right? Well, this is just my opinion, 100% my opinion. But I but I see the jack salmon get counted in the sonar as a salmon, as an adult salmon. I see the dog salmon. I see fish come up early in the run where the big breeder fish are out in the bay, and as soon as they blow the whistle. You've got 900 commercial boats raping the bay and it's political. The government makes a lot of money on the commercial and I'm not anti-commercial at all. I think I think we should have a sustainable uh, fishery for everybody. but I fished there for 25 years and I've seen the fish go from 50 pounds. Every year they shrink. And you know what? This is 2015. And we're, we have biologists that work for us, and, I, and the first thing they do is say, "Oh, we gotta we gotta stop the sport fishermen. Uh, make them no barbs on those hooks. No barbs. No. Let's. What about the nine hundred boats in the bay with nets? I know that's taking cute. the fifty pound breeder fish.
0: That's why I don't <clears throat> agree with trying to fight between any sort of gear um, differences, like bait or or bar. I mean, okay, barbs, whatever. I just don't." Rather than putting all of our energy into that, I'd rather put it into the bigger causes like what you're chatting about. Now, you just mentioned a really valid point. Other biologists who you work with. So, beyond Kramer, that's his name, yeah? Yeah. Who else do you work with?
1: Well, we've worked with a guy named Todd Ellsbury, who's the regional biologist for the state of Oregon.
0: Okay. So okay. you work with a government official?
1: We have. Yeah, we've had some discussions with him, and, and he has to m- remain mainly quiet because of the political atmosphere in the state. Because if you want to talk about uh, politics, you know, primarily we have liberals and conservatives in Oregon. And liberals have a bigger voice because they're a little bit louder, even though they may be outnumbered. But those, those liberals control politics in the state of Oregon. And liberalism and, say, the natural environment go hand in hand. And So uh, I'd say your basic liberal would be anti-hatchery and so whereas Todd Allsbury has to be pretty quiet to maintain his position when working with hatcheries because of the liberal political influence on himself so politics hurt fisheries of course in they a big way and when you i want to get back to your your size on fish you you asked about hatchery fish being the cookie cutter size mm-hmm. well i've seen some pretty big hatchery fish I'm talking spring chinook that I've caught myself over, over 30 pounds, which are then clipped all the way hatchery fish.
0: What about steelhead?
1: Steelhead. I stopped fishing for steelhead years ago on the Sandy because the runs got depleted. You know, when they stopped hatchery productions, the runs are nowhere near what they used to be. I used to have 10, 12, 14, 16 fish days growing up on the Sandy River when I was in high school. I had my own drift boat. I'd float the river every chance I got when I was a high school kid, catch tons and tons of steelhead.
0: Would you have gone fishing back then if you were only catching one fish a day?
1: Uh, No, it wouldn't have maintained my interest.
0: But what if that was something that you were born and raised into, believing that one fish a day was actually a really great day because there was more to it? I mean, couldn't we then try taking out the hatcheries if we were to educate our young people? And the up-and-comers, that they don't need to be catching 20 fish a day, and that right now we just have to nurse it by only catching one.
1: Well, let me me turn the question back to you. Mm -hmm. In today's day of age of high-speed technology, personal quick satisfaction, is one fish a day really going to keep a kid's interest? I think it will. Really?
0: If they know how to appreciate everything else, because you're talking to a Girl Scout. So for me, I was fascinated about... The, the hemlock, learning about, how to, and learning about how to be able to survive in the wild and understanding rocks and, and what granite is and how that mountain came to be. and There was always so much more than just the fish. It was never about the numbers of fish. It was always about the experience. And it, that one fish just made it more rewarding. And I know that sounds like a cliche answer, but that is the honest to God truth. So for me, it would have kept my attention, which is why I'd, well, that's probably why for me, 25 years of of having no fishing, if it meant no hatcheries, works. Yeah. I mean, do you think people in Oregon are are mostly about numbers? Do you think that's what it comes down to?
1: I think we did a study here a little while back, and, and we did a questionnaire, and we asked the local public. Now, the big question was, if you could not keep a fish on the river you were fishing, which means... Basically, if you eliminate hatchery, you can no longer keep a fish, according to rules on most rivers in the state of Oregon, because they have to be fin-clipped to, to take one home. Correct? And so our study showed that 90% of the fishermen would stop fishing if they knew they could not take one home. Wow. So what kind of impact would that have on the state of Oregon?
0: Well, it means you're, you you'd have a lot of fish in the river. <laughs> but you mean from an economical standpoint. Yes. Uh, it, it sounds like it would be a devastation.
1: And we've got an example that just happened within the last two years on the lower Columbia River.
0: Huh. What's the example?
1: The sturgeon fishery on the lower Columbia. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was, it was uh, just eliminated over the last couple of years. Eliminated to, as in? You can no longer keep... A sturgeon on the lower Columbia River. Oh, okay,
0: so they put in the... Yeah, so there's no retention. No we did retention. That on, we did that on the Fraser years yeah. ago.
1: No 80s. retention. And uh, we lost most of our sturgeon due to sea lions. Okay. Sea lions are consuming the breeder sturgeon as we speak. But they're 75 years old.
0: 10-foot sturgeon? Yes. yes. Sea lions are...
1: I watched two of them this year, salmon
2: fishing on the Columbia, right? And I've only been once fishing in the Columbia, and I watched uh, sea lions kill two seven foot sturgeon and eat them rip them apart rip the bellies out of them and then swim on right there so wow okay yeah, that I mean, must i'm not I'm, un- anti, un- anti- I'm not anti-sea lion either but can we allow the population to go completely absolutely crazy go look at the docks down in astoria they're covered in sea lions hmm. the, oh, the population is way out of control
0: so how does that lack of retention come into play here
1: Absolutely zero people fish for sturgeon on the lower Columbia River. That
0: just sounds so ignorant to me. And I'll tell you why. So for me, I, I started out as a guide when I was 21. So 10, oh my God, I'm getting old. 11 years ago. And my first guiding job, I was a sturgeon guide. And I ran a jet boat on the Fraser. And we had gotten used to the no retention and, um, and for us, it was always about the experience. And I was part of the tagging program. And we'd catch our fish, I'd bring them into my cradle, I'd scan them. If they didn't have a chip, I'd implant a chip and we could track their, their data. And because it was a mindset and an education, we were just always taught to to believe in, in fishing for them as an experience. And we were able to hand that experience over to our clients and to our visitors to the province. I do not believe that it has... Imp- I mean, maybe it impacted... The fishery in the 80s or how many people were fishing for them in the 80s but today it's one of the most sought out fisheries in the world is Fraser River Sturgeon and we never keep them. I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that sound ignorant in some way saying I don't want to go fish for something or I don't want to go, I don't want to go partake in something because I can't keep it?
1: Um, I mean, yeah, it, it does sound bad but if, if you're in into it for the fight, um, sure, but but uh, I don't know many people who would want to sit out on the Columbia River with the wind howling, rain you know, blowing in your face sideways to catch and release a sturgeon. Um, you know, I could go and do that during the summertime and, and catch any fish and catch and release it and have a good time and get some sun while I'm at it.
0: It's so backwards because in B.C. I can't think of anybody who would want to catch one of those fish and then take a... A knife and slit it open so it is it's a totally different mindset it is and this is where we run into problems so let's talk a little but bit e- about eating that eating
2: fish is an enjoyment too right eating so fish why, is so why let all the commercial fishermen have all the fun
0: i would love for there to be honestly i would love to see there be enough fish that we didn't have to argue about any of this stuff but and we could there
2: could be enough fish that's our motto there, there could be enough fish if you control the population of the sea lions
0: the sea lions. Yeah. So is that, do you think that that's what the primary problem
2: is? I think it is the primary problem in my personal opinion. Okay, what do that's you think? my personal opinion.
1: Yeah. I think it's a, a combination of predator birds and sea lions. Rice Island in the Lower Columbia and the Arctic terns that nest there are a huge, huge problem. They consume millions and millions of smolts every year. Rice Island is a, is a man-made island on the lower columbia
0: are they consuming more hatchery smolts because one of the arguments is that hatchery smolts don't have the instincts and therefore they can't escape predation as easy
1: that gets back to my argument if they're not consuming a hatchery smolt they're going to consume a native smolt
0: unless the native smolt is a little bit more savvy in the wild
1: well i don't know how do you test that
0: i don't know i don't know the answer to that
1: hey let's circle back to the sturgeon concept um we've got Another guy on our board, Jody Mather, who is the best guide on the Lower Columbia River, mm-hmm. used to be the best sturgeon guide. He books up from April 15th to September 15th every year, every single day. And he's got a waiting list that's three—that's probably three years deep for every one of his days. He used to be one of the best sturgeon guides on the Lower Columbia River. Right. He books one sturgeon trip a year now.
0: Because, because of the lack of retention.
1: Because you cannot retain one. And so now what he does is he focuses on salmon and steelhead only on Lower Columbia.
0: Um, okay, can I backtrack to biologists? Yes. So say that you have 10 biologists who you respect, realistically, in your opinion, of the 10. Agendas aside, how many of them are for hatcheries versus, you know, opposed to hatcheries? What do you think the split is? What's the ratio?
1: I would say, if they were honest... They would all be for hatcheries. You think? 100%. So
0: what about the, the...
2: Who pays the biologists? The government does.
1: So... They would rather not spend the money on the hatcheries because they have a, a uh, public employee's retirement system that needs funding here. And so, basically, all the fish and game dollars go into the general fund. So the less money they spend on fish and game, the more they have for the general fund to spend inappropriately. So... If you want to take a prime example, there's government waste everywhere, and it's huge in fish and wildlife, too. Uh, One of our other board members that I just mentioned, Jody Mather, he was fishing along the jetty last year. He said there were four biologists walking along the jetty collecting seal feces, and he asked them, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're collecting seal feces to see what they're eating, and you know, just then a seal comes to the surface ripping apart another salmon. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what they're eating. Look.
0: Yeah, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out.
1: So there's government waste that it's worse.
0: Okay, okay. Very interesting. I, I had, I didn't know that they did that, that they collected species. So what about your guys' agenda? I mean, who, is there any sort of paid position in your association?
1: No, nope. we're 100% volunteer.
0: And how many people are involved in your organization?
1: Seven board members. We have 4,000 followers on social media mm-hmm. and 450 members.
0: You have 450 members. And who makes up the majority of your members? Are they all Fishing the
1: guides, uh, some local business owners, uh, fishermen, families.
0: Is there anybody who supports you guys who is not out to make any sort of financial gain or somebody who's a meat fisherman? I mean, is there anybody who's really a true conservationist who supports
2: what you yeah. guys do? Well, not 100% of us are, uh, you know, we enjoy catching fish, you know. And, and so, so do I. I yeah, yeah, We
0: so, all enjoy catching fish. So, I mean,
2: fish. you know, I don't, I don't want us to be portrayed as big meat killers. I mean, you know, we enjoy the sport of fishing, and we enjoy numbers. We enjoy hooking fish. We enjoy the whole process. I enjoy taking my child, my kids, fishing, you know. So the more fish, the more opportunity and so we're about creating more opportunity. Do you think
0: we're educating our children to be all about the numbers, though? I mean, that is something I hear often, As I know a lot of the older guard is really frustrated with us because they go, you know, you young folks, you're all about the numbers. And to me, of course, that's it's humorous because I'm not about the numbers. But uh, I do know a lot of people who are. And I just wonder, are we starting to steer our, gener- our younger generations into being about the numbers?
2: Well, look at, look at the number of sea lions. I mean, the sea lions uh, are exploding. I mean, we've got predators and, yeah, we've got the population. Things are different than they were 30 years ago, so the but, numbers are important.
0: But fish, I mean, but, what about... But,
2: but the numbers are important to have more fish, you know.
0: But to retain more fish, though, I mean. Because what about catching a hatchery? Don't you have to, in, in, in the States here, if you catch a hatchery fish, do you have to kill it?
1: No, you can release it.
0: You can release it. Yes. So, what about all those the things I see on the internet of p- people stumbling across stacks of dead, you know, fish that have just gone to waste? And,
1: have where, you
2: ever seen that? Could,
0: no. No, you haven't no. seen that. Um, but so that's not a problem here.
2: No. People. Why? Take how, do fish. You, how do you know if it's a hatchery fish or a wild fish? How do how do how do people know? They're not clipped. How do people know? Mm-hmm. Even if it has a fin, does that mean it's not a hatchery fish? Because it's a social acceptance. People are being brainwashed to think that if oh, this one here has an adipose fin, oh, this is a wild, beautiful fish from Lewis and Clark when they came here. That's not true. It's not true. There's the another. Indian, the Indians have a phenomenally successful hatchery programs on the Columbia. That's why everybody's catching fish on the Columbia. Mm-hmm. They're not clipped.
1: And let me tell you about the Alsea River and some of those rivers in the Central Oregon Coast. Their clip rate is about 25% from their hatcheries.
0: Really? Why? What's the reasoning for that?
1: People are lazy.
0: That's why?
1: Yes. They'll clip a few, throw 10 in the river. Clip a few, throw 10 in the river. It's a fact.
0: I mean, the Native Fish Society must be
1: Up in arms about that? Yeah. Well, no, because it would play right into their theory. Well, look at all these native fish we have in the river. They have all their fins. I don't think they know the difference. No,
2: because they've been taught that, hey, if it has a fin, it's a native fish. What a sticky situation.
0: Uh, Now let's talk a little bit about communication and and opposition. Because there's been a lot of drama with you guys. And again, being a BC resident, I'll be honest with you guys. I am up to my eyeballs on my own conservation issues. I mean, I, I feel like I have my hands full these days. Yeah. So I'm not giving you guys the attention that maybe I should.
1: These are small beans for compared to what you're dealing with.
0: Well, they're just—they're not—it's just not in my backyard yeah. syndrome, you know that sort of yeah. thing. So let's talk a little bit though about what's happening here because it is very disturbing for me to hear that there was there's going to be a meeting and then there was going to be this big um, dispute. So there's just there's always some sort of drama. So let's talk a little bit about how we can get rid of that, you guys have got, you've got your whole panel of people. Do you communicate with people from the other organizations? I mean, is there any sort of clear communication channel that you guys partake in?
1: I have actually had some discussions with Native Fish Society members, and after my discussions, they have no longer, content. they have ceased their relationship with the Native Fish Society and have come over to our side. What would
0: be an example of that?
1: If you give them the, the true facts and not the, the fluff of native fish and wild fish and tell them what our mission statement is, which is to make more fish for all people, I don't care if you're a fly fisherman, if you're a commercial fisherman, if you're a gear fisherman. I don't care. Or someone that just likes to walk up the riverbank and watch salmon spawn. That's great. Let's just make more of these fish so we can experience that.
0: What about the people saying that your true facts are a bunch of hogwash? I mean, is that true? Are you working with people who only support your viewpoint? What would you do if the most respected... What What would you do if Kramer came to you, and he said, "I got to tell you something. Hatchery fish are really bad." Would you change? Would you change your stance?
1: You know, you'd have to look at it like, let's let's study this a little further, and let's let's uh, you know it. it I'd never hear that from him or any game biologist because we've seen them work. And we've seen what happens when you don't have hatchery fish. Yeah. The runs go away.
2: Yeah, I think Greg and I were real passionate because we, we grew up in the 80s on the Sandy River. Seeing what the broodstock hatchery program did for the Sandy River. How many phenomenally beautiful, healthy, nice broodstock fish we had. Broodstock are not made in a test tube. You know, broodstock come from the strongest, best fish, and uh, I think helping Mother Nature out a little bit, I think, really paid off uh, for our river and our experience.
0: They come from wild fish.
2: Yes, broodstock. Yes, but
0: if twenty, if seventy-five percent of fish aren't being clipped due to whatever the reason may be, how do you even know that they're broodstock well, and that we're not you so? You do well, like, well, well, like Greg, like Greg,
2: like Greg mentioned on the Sandy River, the Chinook were wiped out. They took fish from the Clackamas River and uh, reintroduced them over on the Sandy River. And our, our really good uh, runs that we've been experiencing, um, uh, those are not native fish. So if a native fish person catches one on a fly rod and says, look at this beautiful fish, is that a, is that a native fish? No. Is that a native fish? But when they tell all their buddies and show the picture, they're, they're getting the benefit of our belief. They're getting the benefit of hatchery and they're misunderstanding and i think they're misled what percent do you think of fisher wild
1: Um, river you know i've (laughs) talked to a lot of my fly fishing buddies one guy he's uh he's a really good friend of mine he does a lot of the i probably shouldn't say his name he does a lot of the printing for the native fish society and he does printing for us too he's he's a business owner and and he's an avid fly fisherman Used to guide on the deschutes river really really good guy he's one of my best friends right now and he told me in his opinion and and what he notes of, there is only one river in the entire world that has a true native run left. And it's in Russia somewhere, and I can't remember the name of it. But that's coming from a hardcore fly fisherman. The now, true
0: native run of Steelhead? Yes. What about British Columbia?
1: British Columbia? Mm. He didn't mention British Columbia. He He's, thinks that these fish have, you know, because, Here's like, I, mean. I caught a fish on the upper Sandy River. That was supposed to be in the Salmon River in Idaho. It had a transmitter in it, so these fish don't necessarily always come to the river that they were born in or released in. They go, they go all over the, all over the West Coast.
0: If you track the otolith, are you familiar with otoliths? If you track the so, an otolith is otherwise known as an ear stone, and it's between the ears of a of a fish behind the fleshy part of the brain. And what it is is it's a calcium carbonate buildup, basically, and it looks like a thumbprint. It's a tiny little wafer thing, and it looks like a thumbprint, and you, by extracting it, you can you could count the rings like you would on a tree to see the age, but if you look at the minerals that are in that otolith, you can mm-hmm. see specifically where that fish was from, how long it was in the ocean, and which river it went back to. And historically, one of the reasons why steelhead are so adaptive and so amazing is because historically nature has always done that. So if there was some sort of devastation and a river was not was wiped out, that fish could then turn around and go to another river and still survive. And one of the arguments is that wild steelhead have got that that capacity and that ability, whereas the hatchery fish are being bred without having any sort of instinctual inclination. And therefore... They are uh, more susceptible to being wiped out. Have you ever heard of any of that?
1: Because uh, no. it is very
0: natural for fish to switch over to their systems. That's been around from the age, of, you know, from the beginning of time.
1: Well, we know for a fact that these fish, even hatchery fish, end up, you know, at times spawning, and then their offspring are born in the river, and they go to the ocean and come back. So why wouldn't they maintain some of those those uh, traits from that river, as if as they were born there? They absorbed the nutrients from that area by consuming the aquatic life, and and then they went to the ocean and came back.
0: If hatchery fish weren't doing that, we'd have a really big problem, mm-hmm. because there would officially be, they would basically be brain-dead fish. Because that's the whole key to a yeah. fish, right, is that they go to the ocean and that they, that they come back. So let's talk a little bit about your guys' panel then. I also don't know much about the Native Fish Society other than I'm I'm friends with a few of those people and some of the people who work with with them are are, our clients of mine and great people. And I just, I know that a lot of them, they have biology backgrounds. On your panel, do you, of the seven board board of directors, you said? Seven of the Seven guys. Are any of those guys well-versed in the environment? Or did they go to school for this? Do they... Have any sort of background or are they all just guys who love to fish who hire out biologists who agree with with them
1: nobody in our board has a biology background so ha- people have a wealth experience in the fisheries uh, like jody mather he's a fishing guy he's been in the business for for years and years and years he's probably the closest person that we have to the resource mm-hmm. because he's in it day in and day out but other than that it's just a a, a conglomerate of guys who want to sustain the fishery for future generations.
0: How much of a pull do you guys have uh, with the government these days?
1: I would say zero.
0: Are you frustrated?
1: Um, to a certain extent because we see the, the political influence on the fishery here in Oregon as being negative as it was in, with the logging industry.
0: Do you work with any other organizations in other states? Yes. And and also hatchery advocates? Yes. And do you find that there is a substantial number of people who are starting to have some weight in the fisheries world?
1: Uh, You know, in smaller towns and smaller uh, communities, yes.
0: Could that just be summed up as people who aren't as educated?
1: No. No, people are very well educated. It's it's not like you know we're, we live in the Portland Portland metropolitan area and we're all super intelligent. Whereas a guy that lives in yeah. Poduck, Eastern Eastern is an idiot. Right. I, <laughs> I know what you're so. saying. I know what you're saying. I don't think. So. I just
0: always wonder if sometimes. Um, well, I guess with the internet these days, it's pretty hard not to be able to find information when you're looking for it, isn't it? Yeah. So do you want to where do you want to you see your organization going, you guys, moving forward? What would you like to see?
1: You know what what would be the ultimate is if we can eliminate fin clipping? Entirely. Okay. Our dream would be let's create a hatchery situation like some of the Indian hatcheries, whereas they don't have pools. They actually have a, they basically mimic a wild stream for some of their rearing ponds. They have rocks for cover, they have natural cover, they have brush, they have stumps. And they completely mimic a natural environment for these fish to be raised in. Phenomenal. That would be awesome. And then we could say, let's not clip these fish anymore. Let's release them all and say groups like the Native Fish Society can go, okay, let's agree that a fish is a fish. Because if you're looking at the human species, a test tube baby is a real baby. So a hatchery salmon is a real salmon. No doubt about it. It can't be anything but. If we could mimic the natural environment, forget about fin clipping. Let's just propagate these species to whatever the nutrients of the river can support, can you know sustain, and let's just roll with it. And everybody, and then we could say, okay, let's let's limit the number of fish that you can retain, which I'm fine with. You know, anybody's fine with that.
0: Hmm. How would they manage that?
1: Just like they do now, you bag just, limits. you set your regulations, your bag limits on. Whatever
0: It's going to be very interesting. I'm
2: fascinated with this entire topic. But, but I think the sport fishermen don't take a huge percentage of the fish. It's the commercial fishing, <coughs> the, the sea lions, there's a, you know we're just a tiny little segment here. you know, the sport fishermen, and we inject a huge amount of capital into our sport and our world. But are the hatchery, are the
0: are the people who are against hatcheries really upset at the amount of fish that you're taking? They're more upset that there's hatchery fish in the river because in their opinions and, and from the science I've seen anyway um, that it's wiping out the the wild run It's not so much that you guys are taking fish that's the upset is it I thought it was more that the hatchery fish
2: are taking the fish really that's the I mean if you look at concern. two if you look at two fish on if you held up two different fish could you tell the difference between a wild fish and a native most people can most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference at all
0: between a hatchery fish and a, and a wild fish. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to ask one of the biologists. I'm I, I curious. can show I
2: can show you some broodstock fish, steelhead on the Sandy River that you would pick up, and you would say this is the most beautiful wild fish on the planet, and I will guarantee you that it's a broodstock hatchery fish. And that's the problem. You know, um, each side of the story is looking at it like, well, oh, you know, it's not. It's that's not a
0: wild fish. I'm definitely. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look into if there's some sort of biological difference. Whether it be from DNA or or the brain or the otolith or um, the feeding habits, all of these things are very interesting, and I think that it's something that's very confusing to the general public. I'll be honest with you, Greg. When I reached out to you, I was gonna I've got a column for Fly Fusion Magazine, and I was gonna write a column about hatchery steelhead. I, I thought that it would be interesting to highlight the points, and when I started to really dive into it and read varying viewpoints oh my gosh i just wanted to stay away from it i I just wanted nothing to do with it it's so controversial it's so um opinion it's just it's just a disaster in my opinion right now do you think that we'll ever be able to work together are you guys trying to to work together with some of the other societies like the native fish society yeah
2: i think the native fish society um from my personal opinion, it, it appears to me like they would like to get rid of all fishermen except for fly fishermen on all the rivers, that they would like a total dominance of the sport and the river and the fish. I mean, I think that's that's part of the big conflict, you know?
0: It'll be interesting. I don't think I have anyone from NFS lined up here, but um, I'll be speaking with John McMillan. Have you, are you familiar with John? Heard the name. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he's a biologist, and... And he lives over on the OP in Washington. And yeah, I think he just kind of stays out of the way over there. But I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what I find out. I'll, would you be interested in listening to, to their viewpoints when these podcasts are all done? Sure. Yeah. I'd love to open up some sort of communication and see what ends up happening. But, again, I'm a dreamer. I'm the girl who could go fishing and be happy turning over rocks. So <laughs> it says a lot, doesn't it? Um, Greg, is there anything else that you wanted to add or to ask me?
1: Um. Well, no, I just want to make sure that, that people know that, that we are an organization that has nothing against the fly fishing community. We actually, you know, enjoy fishermen of all kinds, and uh, we would like to see more fish in all of our rivers for everybody to enjoy. And if it would increase your takes on a fly from 1 to 15, I think you'd probably find more enjoyment of that, even though it may or may not be a native or a wild fish. Because I guarantee it, you're not going to be able to tell the difference.
0: And if it means in the long term that it does have a negative impact on our wild stocks, is it worth it?
1: Is it worth it? We've proved that they actually do not have a negative impact. In fact, without them, we wouldn't have most of the runs that we have today. Due to the fact, which we had covered before, the increase in predation on these fish from the time they're born to the time they go to the ocean and try to return. It's devastating what they have to go through. It's a gauntlet. And without hatchery programs, these runs would be decimated. They would no longer exist, and we've seen that on various rivers.
0: Well, thank you so much for both of your time. Is there anything you wanted to add, John? No, I think that sounds up. All right. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks. Thank you.
0: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Join me in the next episode as I visit Amy Hazel in Maupin, Oregon.